Hi, I'm Tyra G., your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal women and all of you who love them. Yes, you, fearsome and generous, humble and honest in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. We bravely walk into places where tradition has taught us there are some things we just don't talk about. But here we live beyond the wreckage. We share some aha moments and stories that have been left in our pockets for far too long. Every week we start right where we are. We are in the second year of our production. This is absolute proof that dreams can come true. Frankly speaking with Tyra G was one of my most precious, precious dreams. Thank you so much for helping me make it come true. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia on your PC, TV, or mobile device. And we are webcast worldwide on the internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Now I know Saturday evening's date night But not to worry, you can catch our podcast on YouTube. Just key in, Frankly Speaking, with Tyra G. And for those of you who enjoy offline communications with Tyra G, you know it's easy. Tyra at tyragarlington.com. I love hearing from you, and thanks again so much for tuning in. Thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our frankly speaking theme song and being so creative by calling it I'm listening our theme this month is thank you for your service then and now we are celebrating veterans and active duty military Did you know from the American Revolution to the Iraq War, the U.S. had fought in 12 major wars? Did you know there are a group of people who have given of themselves mightily to secure our rights as a nation? Many have paid the ultimate price, and many have continued to serve us individually and collectively at the completion of their tour of duty. Did you know that this year we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the first World War, also known as a great and terrible struggle. We reflect on the sacrifice of our nation's servicemen and the war whose enduring legacy shaped the social, military, and political fabric of the 20th century. During the next two months, my goal is to provide information about exposure to diverse perspectives about war experiences and their impact on family necessary services provided, social, cultural, and political considerations. Today, I want to create our common thought space for our time together by sharing a story from saluteheroes.org. Mary Jessie Herrera is from Somerton, a little town near Yuma, Arizona, not far from the Mexican border. A fourth generation American, 
Mary always wanted to go into the military, though no one else in her family had a military background. As a kid, I always was the one playing with toy soldiers, she said. And I had an uncle who served in Vietnam where he earned several decorations and a distant uncle who won the Congressional Medal of Honor. Mary was a sergeant in the military police. She looks as if she weighs maybe 100 pounds, driven wet, but does not see herself as petite. I think of myself as a big person, she said. I never thought of myself as female or Hispanic in the military. I was a soldier, period. I carried my own weight. There was nothing girly about me in the military. Plus, I don't like labels. I went to the military to be a soldier, not a female soldier or a Hispanic soldier. When President Bush gave Saddam Hussein his ultimatum, Mary's unit was on the Kuwaiti side of the border, waiting to move into Iraq. While on foot, Mary carried an M16 like other soldiers, in addition to a 9mm sidearm due to her position as a military police. But as the gunner on her Humvee, she managed a 40mm grenade launcher and a machine gun. We were providing security escorts for convoys. I was 22 at the time. We were a quick response force, she says. Mary came into constant contact with Iraqis and was learning to speak Arabic quite well. You see these impoverished people living in a war-torn country? They lived for so long under a brutal dictator and now their country was being torn apart in a chaotic situation. It makes you realize how fortunate we are to live here in this country, she said. On November 8, 2003, Mary's unit took prisoners to Fallujah. On the way back to their base, Mary was riding a turret of the lead Humvee with her pocket, excuse me, her rocket launcher and machine gun at ready. She saw two spotters on a bridge and knew they were caught calling in coordinates to do some hostiles. I told the guy below me to pass the word. We're gonna get hit, she said. By the time I got back up, we were already hit. Mary began returning the fire with her machine gun. She felt a flick on her right bicep and thought she'd been hit by a rock. It was a bullet that passed through the flesh. She kept firing. Then I got hit again, she said, and my arm fell into my lap. I had no feeling in my arm. I thought it had been blown off. She yelled down to the guys for help, but they were all firing their weapons and they couldn't hear her. She kicked the commander to get his attention. The look on his face when he looked up at her said, it's bad. In the back of the Humvee, one of Mary's fellow soldiers put pressure on her arm while the convey fought against, fought through the ambush. She had a lot of blood lost and her life was in peril. I laid back and closed my eyes, she said. Someone slapped me and said, open your eyes. I remember thinking, this is it. My whole 22 years of life on earth are over. I felt a sense of peace. Everything made sense. I've always had strong faith. I said to God, if you need me for something, I'm ready to go. I told him I was proud. I have led a pretty good life, but I grieve for my parents to think they would lose another child. She was airlifted to Fallujah. 
where she did not have the capability to manage her arm in that service. She was sent to Germany where the doctors told her she would have to amputate, they would have to amputate her arm. But when she came to, the arm was still there. They sent her on to Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas, where they began the long reconstruction of her arm. She was there for a year, suffering through as many as 20 operations. It was during this period the Coalition to Salute America's Heroes appeared. They paid off my school loans, Mary said. That was a huge burden off my shoulders. Today, Mary has only partial use of her right arm. She's, ex she's suffered extensive nerve damage. The mis mi missing, I'm sorry, radius was replaced with one from a cadaver. Her arm is held together with screws and plates. My parents raised me very well, she said. My faith is so concrete, there's nothing I can't handle, nothing I can't deal with. Mary finished her college degree and is working on her master's. She resides in Arizona and is raising two daughters. She still communicates frequently with the officers and soldiers. She is proud of our country and proud she was able to serve. Thank you, Mary, for your service. Journalist and author Isabel Allende reminds us that we don't even know how strong we are until we are forced to bring that hidden strength forward. In times of tragedy, of war, of necessity, people do amazing things. The human capacity for survival and renewal is awesome. After the break, you will hear about a different war from a lieutenant colonel in the Army Medical Service Corps a Vietnam officer from the Vietnam War. His authentic story will help us better understand war from a racial and cultural lens, as well as how his life looks and works for him today. He's joined in studio by his wife, teammate, and friend, Diane. Put up your feet, grab a stack, but stay real close. We'll be right back. And we are back, so let's talk. Let me say a welcome, a formal welcome to Mr. Now, George Bodie and his lovely wife, Diane. A continuous blessing to his life. She's just sitting here smiling at him. George, thank you for your service. Well, thank you. And thank you for being here. You know, I request each of my guests to talk a little bit about herself or himself so that my audience can hear your voice. You know, when you hear voices, you get an image, and they can hear how you phrase things, so that adds to the image. So would you do us the honor of pretending like you're a book in a human library, and uh, pretend like you're going to give us a preface that makes us want to read the whole book? Wow. Yeah, go ahead and do <laughs> that for me. Well, greetings, Tara, to you and your listeners. And as far as an opening to my book, I think I would just introduce myself in such a way that I'd let you know a little bit about my background. Okay. I was born in Alachua, Florida, <clears throat> and uh, I was raised in Browns Mills, New Jersey. I was the eldest of 11 children. My formal education resulted in a 
a Bachelor of Science degree from Virginia State University in Petersburg, Virginia, and a Master's degree in Health Administration from Baylor University in Waco, Texas. I served in the U.S. Army Medical Services Corps in a variety of uh, positions, spanning over a period of 23 years and culminating in retirement from military service as a lieutenant colonel. Recently, I'm fully retired from the workaday world, and I'm really spending more time now engaged in the joys of being a grandfather <laughs> to three grandchildren. That's Max and Alex and Gemma. Uh, as an active member of the American Legion, um, that keeps me uh, occupied. I'm also a member of uh, the Chantilly Baptist Church, serving there as the church clerk, the vice chair of the trustee board, children's church and adult Bible study teacher, and I sing with the male chorus. My wife, Diane, is a retired Fairfax County uh, educator. And at our church, she serves as the president of the usher ministry. We have one son, Jason, and a daughter-in-law, his lovely wife, Pam, who have graced us with our grandchildren. So that gives you an idea of who I am, a little bit about my background. And it is indeed uh, an honor to be able to speak to you uh, this evening, especially on the eve of Veterans Recognition. Thank you. You did, you did really well. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, you've heard George's voice, and I wanted to, I thought about this uh, and added this today. I realized that our audience is both international and intergenerational, and I'm sure there's some people that may not be able to place the Vietnam War in, in a historical perspective, perspective. I'm doing really well today. Okay, well, uncross the tongue. I added a few factoids as they relate specifically to the war and the racial peace. And I'll just read those before we start talking. Let's go ahead. Um, this is taken from Ancestry.com, the Vietnam era. Factoid, course, causes of the Vietnam War was to resolve uh, around the simple belief held by America that communism was threatening to expand all over Southeast Asia. Factoid. During the Vietnam War between 1964 and 1973, the U.S. military drafted 2.2 million American men out of an eligible pool of 27 million. This I found very interesting. The youngest Vietnam vet alive today is 54 years old. Amazing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Factoid. The Vietnam War saw the highest proportion of blacks ever to serve in an American war. During the height of the U.S. involvement, 1965 to 1969, blacks who formed only 11 percent of the American population made up 14.6 percent of the soldiers in Vietnam. The uh, census says 7,262 died during that in theater. So you and I have had conversations about this and I want this very personal, George. We talked about you 
getting commissioned to go there. And what, before you got, what did you expect? And then we'll talk about what, what actually was your reality. All right. Well, as far as expectations, I think um, it was really fueled by the time that I was in college by the fact that uh, the Vietnam, Vietnamese War had already uh, begun and was raging. Mm -hmm. uh, many of my student friends and colleagues uh, who joined me in ROTC were always in the back of their mind. They were afraid mm -hmm. that their number might come up. Right, right, right. Uh, either as a draft, and in my case, I was not drafted. Uh, as a matter of fact, I uh, was in ROTC. I joined ROTC because it provided a way for me get my college education. And and for those who may not understand the acronym, acronym, would you explain what ROTC is? Yes, the ROTC, that acronym stands for Reserve Officer Training Corps. Right, okay, <laughs> thank you. Yes, and uh, in the military, I quite frequently rely on acronyms, but if there's something I need to explain, I'll be glad to, to do that as I go along. But ROTC um, provided me with an education in terms of having won an ROTC scholarship, mm -hmm. I was the oldest of 11, and uh, my parents didn't have a lot of money. And getting a college education uh, was a challenge, but with the ROTC scholarship, I was able to get through. And um, as you receive education uh, funded by the federal, uh, federal uh, government, and that's how this ROTC scholarship was uh, funded, uh, you owe them something, and it's usually <laughs> in the form of time, yes. time spent. Yes. And and for me, I uh, had to pay back two years for every year that they paid for my college education. Okay. So as a start, <clears throat> as a draftee, you usually were drafted for two years, and then you could go out if you wanted right, to. Right, right, right. And in my case, I owed a little bit more time than that. And um, in so doing there was a greater possibility for me to be caught up in whatever else was going on from a political standpoint involving the Department of Defense. And consequently, I was in uh, the Army, and I stayed in the United States at Fort Dix, New Jersey, for the first two years of my um, enlistment, if you want to call it. That actually was not only enlistment, but uh, the time I spent on, on active duty. And at that time, uh, my wife and I were at Fort Dix, New Jersey, those two years flew by. And, before, mm. and I made captain in, in that two-year two period. And I went to Vietnam at that point in time. And along with all the other concerns and uh, just anticipation, not knowing what to really expect, and you right. asked about expectation, right? all I wanted to do was to go do my time and get back. Mm -hmm. That was uh, paramount within my mind at the time. But once all that took place, and I actually arrived over there, um, I think I must have um, matured uh, at a great degree. Mm -hmm. Because as a young captain, not only was I um, providing leadership role for men as young as I was and younger, but also men who were much older yes, yes, yes. Than, than I was. Yes. And that was a real challenge to just relate to them in such a way that they would have trust and uh, have some concern uh, for what I wanted them to do. And respect. Yes, and respect. So it was um, quite a thing to, to bear in mind as a, a young captain fresh out of college. Mm -hmm. uh, even though the ROTC training was, was good training, when it came to the reality, 
it was uh, somewhat different. Yes. And my first inclination when I got there, I wanted to stay where I landed, and that was in Long Bend Army uh, uh, Post, Mm -hmm. which was uh, in the capital city of Saigon. I didn't want to go anywhere else because when I got there, it was it was a surprise. It was pretty pretty well laid out. <laughs> Many things to do. There's little restaurants we could visit. You could go downtown. A number of things. <clears throat> and all I did was hear stories about other places in Vietnam, and it didn't sound like I wanted to go to those places because of the risk associated with uh, with being there. But immediately it was made plain to me that they were going to send me further north. And in reality, I did go as far north as I possibly could. In the city of Waves, the ancient city of Wave, mm-hmm. the 101st Airborne was there, and I was assigned at a place called Fubai, a very um, basic place, no real buildings. We had lean-tos, basically, to <laughs> provide us with shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just uh, as far north as we could go, and because the city of Wave was right on the edge of the demilitarized zone. The demilitarized zone was a demarcation that really separated us from the known position of the enemy, mm-hmm. which was the North Vietnamese right. and the Viet Cong. And um, when I got there, it was pretty obvious that there were a lot of black soldiers in that unit, a lot of black soldiers. Mm-hmm. The one thing that was pointed out to me as I was being prepped for going was that we do not have a lot of black leaders up there. We need to get some leaders up there to uh, help with our, our soldiers. And no matter what I said, I knew some folks down in Long Bend, but that did not really impact their decision. I had to go. Mm-hmm. And I went up there. They took me up there by helicopter. And uh, I landed initially in a place called Da Nang, which was an air base. But Da Nang was pretty nice compared to where I ended up. They wouldn't let me stay there either. <laughs> I went all the way up to Fubai. And as I said, many, many black soldiers. And when my chopper landed on the helipad mm-hmm. in uh, Fubai. The 85th of Ag Hospital was the hospital that I was assigned to. And immediately, once I got off the helicopter with my um, knapsack and uh, duffel bag, because I didn't have a lot, the first thing I saw was a patient who had come in in a chopper uh, just before me no one was there to meet me. All the attention was on the pa- patient, and rightfully so. Right. And the patient had been playing around with a f- white phosphorus grenade. Did you say playing around? Playing around. And unfortunately, that was uh, the story of a lot of incidents over there, people who were not taking their situation seriously. Wow. And he was playing around with a white phosphorus grenade. It exploded, of course. And his body was burned from head to toe, just about. And uh, I saw that. That caught me really off guard. I didn't expect that right away. Mm -hmm. I went into the emergency room along with this uh, patient. And all the attention was on him. And after they got him situated, uh, someone turned around and asked who I was. Mm -hmm. I came in there as the company commander for the medical company. And once they showed me to my hooch, when we talk about hooches, that was uh, our quarters, basically. Mine kind of sat out in the open with some sandbag revetments around them. Revetments were protection. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a, a host of uh, medical corps uh, 
enlisted men who provided health care as corpsmen okay. for patients. And uh, all around us, uh, there were a lot of battle scenes. As I said before, the 101st uh, Airborne was located very near us, the headquarters. And the hospital was always located between um, a landing strip, an Air Force landing strip, and um, the place where our, our batteries for safety were located. The only problem with that, we were close to the landing strips because it would allow us to evacuate uh, patients out of there pretty quickly. But whenever the enemy wanted to mess up everything, mm -hmm. they would always go to the airstrips and they would do indirect bombings um, and whatever else they could to destroy the airstrip. And many of those those uh, uh, rounds would fall short or go long, and depending on where the hospital was, we would get hit. We always had a Red Cross, mm -hmm. you know, on our, on our buildings mm -hmm. and on our tents, but that meant nothing to our enemy. Mm -hmm. And consequently, we were in the line of fire quite a bit. And we were also subject to uh, a number of um, attacks by what we call sapper attacks at night usually. And these were carried out primarily by Viet Cong. Mm -hmm. And the Viet Cong were um, just uh, merciless in terms of taking American lives. So as a company commander, I had to lead the element for protecting our entire hospital compound, which for a 22-year-old, 20, 21, 22-year-old <laughs> captain was quite a task. Yeah, and it sounds like our story was about a 22-year-old yes, yes. military policewoman. Yes. Now, the one thing I'm feeling, I see, I feel what I think you might have walked into physically. Mm -hmm. And you're telling me there was an emotional erosion as well. Tell me about your, your, your folks, your men. What were they going through, aside from blowing themselves up? <laughs> that was that individual, <laughs> although we had them involved in that quite a bit different things yes. they would be involved in that uh, resulted in adverse conditions for them but uh, most of them I uh, think much like I was they wanted to get back home safely okay and if you're not directly engaged in uh, combat in this case they were support troops providing health care mm -hmm. to those that were involved in direct uh, fire in incidents but sometimes there were d down days uh, other times they were very, very busy. And so young men have to be kept occupied. Yes, they, they do. They need to do something. Yes. And consequently, uh, many of them would fall prey to what the uh, northern, uh, North uh, Vietnamese would provide, and that was um, hackish, hashes, I should say, excuse me, marijuana that was laden with heroin. Mm -hmm. and other you know, drug items. And for those who were studying history, they'd recognize that during this time, the Department of Defense was uh, fighting a huge problem with soldiers who became hooked on yes. various drugs. Yes, yes. DOD had a tremendously large program for drug um, identification in terms of um, uh, they would take your urine, examine it, mm -hmm. And many soldiers were found to be using, mm -hmm. and they had to either be treated or be sent home mm -hmm. 
many of them got involved in the uh, uh, sale of drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, they had to be uh, tr uh, actually prosecuted. Mm -hmm. Many of them went to jail on account of it. But it was a very, very uh, different kind of a situation for soldiers to be faced with. I mean, it's bad, bad enough to be faced with uh, war, mm -hmm. your life in peril, and have that compounded with drug use, which would impair all your senses. And you can imagine what it was like trying to protect a compound of soldiers who were injured. Your means of protection came from the soldiers who were there mm -hmm. as health care givers. Right. And we also had a lot of conscientious objectors who, because of their beliefs, right. could not carry a weapon or would not carry a weapon. Right. So all this compounded the, the, the ability to um, actually uh, protect our, uh, our compound's perimeter. And as a company commander, you were also the per perimeter you know, uh, captain and had to protect not only the, the soldiers, all the doctors, all the nurses, and, of course, your patients. Okay, now you're 22 year, years old, mm -hmm. and you have just described you're out in swampland, and you are very vulnerable because your hospital stands between airstrip and battleground, and often ordnance misses the airstrip. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, I can understand a soldier's vulnerability being increased, one, by war, two, by drugs, three, by uncertainty, and four, by fear. So what do you do as a 22-year-old to mitigate this if you do? Um, I mean, you can just quickly, you don't have to get into details, but what was it like for you? I mean, I'm just thinking, I remember 22, and I couldn't have done anything like that. I was too busy partying. But, <laughs> but of course, during that time, a lot was going on in America yes, there was. that mirrored what you were talking. It was a war mm -hmm. uh, of objection, pol political war, and it was a war on drugs, and it was a, a war on free sexuality, and so there was just war everywhere. But there you were. Now, your wife, wait a minute, she, she's back in New Jersey. <laughs> uh, are you communicating with her frequently? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, she was actually in Virginia when I left. Oh. She went to live with her sister. Okay, okay. And we communicated as often as we could. Now, back then, we didn't have cell phones. Right, 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 right. We didn't have uh, phone booths on the yeah. on the battlefield. About the most uh, technically oriented thing that was useful that we had was a, uh, a telephone that involved um, people in between you and your... <laughs> Yeah, your your uh, uh, significant other changing the switch on the mm -hmm. so that you could every time you said something you had to end a, a sentence with over right so right, they right. would know to throw the switch to allow the other person to speak. <laughs> it's like a walkie-talkie type well, of a thing. How did you comfort her? Well, I used to send her a lot of audio tapes. Good, good. Audio tapes. Matter of fact, she pulled out some the other day. Some old audio tapes. Uh huh. And uh, we would mail those, and I, I guess I tried to do them on a, um, at least a week, every other week, something like that basis. And she would do the same thing, send me an audio tape. And, of course, there were letters. Of course. And that's about the best you could do at that time. Now, I've often wondered what it would be like for a spouse. Now, 
your spouse is a, a listener tonight. She's an active listener. Uh, what do you think? How do you think she was managing? She was with her sister. That's always good. Family mm -hmm. is always good. Faith, I'm sure, played some part in that. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. What do you think was going What has she told you? Let's do it <laughs> that way. What has she told you it was like for her? I think the greatest concern for her was uh, if a car that she didn't recognize as be being a regular uh, commuter on her street. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> Yes. If a car came up, yes. You know, she became very, very. Now, uh, explain to our listening audience, many of whom don't know what that's coded for. Yeah. <laughs> okay. How spouses and family are notified yeah. of casualties at war. Right. So, tell tell us specifically what that means. It, um, <clears throat> whenever there is a, a casualty, in uh, as a result of uh, war, uh, the army and all the other services assign casualty officers whose job it is to go in person and relay the bad news mm -hmm. to the next of kin. Uh -huh. And they would always come up in a, a large sedan, you know. Uh, black. Black or, or <laughs> whatever they had available most of the time, black sedan. Yes. And they would come <clears throat> along with uh, a, an officer who was a casualty officer and, and one other individual at least. Mm -hmm. And they would... Uh, make an om ominous type of, a, of an announcement, mm -hmm. uh, present a flag, mention some of the benefits that will result from right, right, the person's right. death. And it was just a very, very um, official type of, a, of an event. But uh, you can imagine from a spouse's standpoint that that's something you would not want to. Uh, Absolutely. And you're looking at the symbolism, mm -hmm. you know. At, I imagine just keeping a watchful eye mm -hmm. is... Uh, have it it becomes normal behavior um so you are there you are communicating with your lovely bride you know she's as okay as she can be as you are let's see if we can um elevate uh the seriousness why don't you tell me what's the greatest thing you learned about your vietnam experience that you use today I think probably the greatest thing um, was had to do with my uh, spirituality. Okay. Because even though my parents had uh, raised me to uh, be exposed to church mm -hmm. and all the things that church does for us, I um, was not sure. And when I when I got over there, I started attending all kinds of services mm -hmm. because I didn't know what was going how it was going to end up. I went to Catholic services. I went to Jewish services. Mm -hmm. uh, we also had some that were just uh, non-denominational. I went to them. I don't know what I was looking for, but I went to them just in case. <laughs> mm -hmm. And as it turned out, <clears throat> I realized that all I had to do was to rely on what uh, my parents had instilled, instilled in me. Which and, was? And that is... Uh, a belief in God and all the basic tenets of Christianity mm -hmm. uh, that I firmly believe even today. And that's all. I didn't have to look for anything else because that's what sustained me while I was there. And uh, I truly believe that that's what got me back because so, I prayed uh -huh. and uh, uh, asked for guidance 
And I did it in a very sincere manner. And I think that's uh, really why I am here today. When I went to Vietnam, there were a number of guys who were in my battalion in ROTC who had gone ahead of me, Mm -hmm. who immediately lost their lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just didn't want to be counted in that particular number. But I knew it was a possibility. And so I wanted to make sure that I had done what it was what was necessary from a spiritual standpoint i think that's why i went looking mm-hmm. different different I understand. places i really do and realize it already had it and again referencing our story the mm-hmm. young lady said her faith gave her peace oh yes and uh we we today have evidence of that but as a 22 year old just overwhelmed by responsibility and tragedy mm-hmm. that's rough so Let's use that to catapult or segue. How do you use your faith today? How do you share your faith today? How does, what role does faith play in your life today? Let me do it better that way. <laughs> well, I think today <coughs> uh, I just look for ways for it to continue to grow. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, uh, I think I mentioned in my intro that um, I, I I'm quite uh, uh, active in my church. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I did mention is that uh, I do teach a course every year that deals with evangelism. And that evangelism uh, is something that uh, is firmly rooted in, uh, you know, my faith, what I believe. And uh, the course that I teach is really sort of centered on those false witnesses, those things that are not Christian, mm-hmm. those things that are contrary to Christianity. And it's so that people will be aware that that does exist. So um, that's one thing you know, with, that, with my spirituality that I'm, I'm involved in today. Also with my uh, uh, son, his children, my grandchildren, and just my everyday life, I try to uh, do what's been instilled into, in, into me and trying to make myself a, a better man. It's, it's sort of a, a never-ending quest. Yes, it is. You know, it's to, called a process. Exactly. Yes. It, it, it never really ends. And I think if I live to be 200 years old, I, I don't think still, so, George. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I don't mean I to be rude. I still be no, 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 growing. No. Let's, just, let's just go over to something else you mentioned that I didn't know about Okay. that had to do with the American Legion. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the American Legion is one of the, the oldest patriotic organizations that we uh, have here in the country and one of the largest ones. You hear the VFW. Yes. But the American Legion is one of the largest. And um, I be- belong to a post, it's post 114 in Manassas, Virginia, mm-hmm. of the uh, Virginia Department. And each of the states has its own American Legion Department. And um, I've been the past commander for several years. What uh, do you do there? What what goes on? Well, I'll tell you, it's, there are a lot of community-oriented activities. Okay. And uh, we look at uh, some of the high school ROTC programs. Okay. Um, we do uh, work with um, uh, oratorical contests, you know, preparing those sure. students. And whenever we can, uh, we try to finance some kind of uh, scholarship activity we designate individuals to go to the uh, 
Boys State. Okay. Boys State, which is a, another uh, civically oriented uh, program. And, um, and you know, those are the major things that we do. And you gave yourself a title when you first start talking about it. You are a post something. I, yeah, I was the commander for two years. Now I'm referred to as a past commander. <laughs> so the American Legion civic arm, is that appropriate? You can say that, yes. Okay. Yeah. Is organized as military? No, it's not. I mean, it's, it's based on military because in order to join the American Legion, you have to meet certain requirements <coughs> that include having been on active duty okay. for a, a certain period of time. And you look at the periods of time, they as are associated with times of conflict, you know, times of uh, war, uh, and certain difficulties. And if you serve during that time, mm -hmm. then you would, could actually apply to be a, uh, a, member, a member of the, uh, that particular post or oh. any other post that you want to. And it's not restricted by... Uh, no uh, gender or anything like that. You have male, female. Do you uh, have a large female population? Not a large, but they are represented in the post. Excellent. Mm -hmm. I was looking at uh, the statistics for the wall, mm -hmm. and uh, one of the comments that was made, you know, was that there were women who served, nurses who served, oh, and yes. the names on the wall, but there was an emphasis on the fact we must not forget. All the um, references and websites I visited always said men, men, mm -hmm. men. And that's why I went, I went, were there any women? And I, I had those statistics. Yeah, I know they were there. Yeah, right. And what I also heard from uh, a woman who served in Vietnam uh, was that the Vietnamese women and the women in the U.S. Army became friends. Yes. And I thought that very interesting. Women have a way <laughs> of crossing over and nurturing one another and taking things forward. Right. Did you experience any women in your, in your, while you were there? Uh, yes. Um, during the time that I was there, we still had female nurses okay. out in uh, areas that were considered the bush or okay. dangerous areas. Okay. And But as time grew, uh, went on, and we neared the end of the uh, this whole Vietnam uh, experience, um, there came a time when we had to evacuate areas because of advancements by the Viet Cong, uh -huh. because of planned bombings by our own bombers. Uh, for the you know, B-52s. Right. And we would um, make sure that the women were out of harm's rate to the greatest extent that we possibly could. So there were times we evacuated them from the hospital, and we were all males, had male nurses. Okay. And they were the only ones left on the compound. And I can remember um, the last time that, was, uh, that occurred with me, I was the uh, ranking person left in that compound because of impending... Oh, and that was just a delightful oh, feeling, was, wasn't it? it was. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily it didn't last for long. It was about a week mm -hmm. that we were there maintaining our compound. Everybody else was gone. And, of course, as a commander, you have to set an example, yes. lead, provide yes. reassurance and all yes. those kinds of things. So my, my last question before you have your assignment, mm -hmm. what's the best advice you would give to someone uh, – may be interested in a military career. Mm -hmm. Let's say maybe 
they're 18, 19 years old, what would you tell them? Because that's a whole nother cohort. Mm -hmm. And they, in my mind, haven't reached an emotional maturity to handle a lot of um, catastrophe. What would you say to them? I would tell them if they had a, an interest in the military, you know, don't be afraid to pursue it because uh, the military provided uh, a pathway for me in life. Okay. Uh, being the oldest of 11 children, you know, not the richest people in the world, uh, it opened up uh, the world, so to speak, for me. The travel, mm -hmm. the people that you come and become uh, uh, acquainted with, um, just many things that you wouldn't think about in the military. It's not somebody yelling in your face all the time. Right, right, right. That kind of thing. But there's a, there's a lot that can be uh, gained from a military career. So I wouldn't discourage a person. If it's during a time of um, uh, war yes, uh, or conflict where you might, be, might find yourself uh, in a place that's not so safe, yes, uh, then so be it. We'll know that beforehand, but know that that is a possibility. Even our folks who joined the National Guard or whatever, they realize that that is a possibility. Yes, and yes, yes. It may come to pass, it may not, but I would not discourage it because it's, uh, there are a lot of good things about serving your country. I know firsthand our first home was GI uh, Bill, my dad's graduate education. Uh, but the thing that I did not mention, I think, was the Vietnam War was the first war where the troops were integrated officially. And it was around right on the heels of the passing of the Civil Rights Act. So you can legislate behavior but not attitude. So I think both in the United States and overseas there may have been a lag. So I imagine at times there were some tensions. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it, being in the military, it's just a, a microcosm of the country. Yes. So the, same, yes. the same things that you see in the country are, you know, you can reflected, see them. Reflected, yeah. yeah you can, they're reflected in the military as well. Well, and I personally just want to say I'm glad you're home. Well, I and <laughs> I'm glad I know you, and I'm glad you're about to read your letter to your younger self, oh, yeah. as each of my guests get to do. Um, I'm excited. I can't wait to hear this. I'm ready. Go. <laughs> okay. My letter starts out, hey, George, that's me. <laughs> I said, you need to read this letter and take it to heart because it's from someone who has your best interest at heart. As a matter of fact, there's no one in the world who has greater concern for you or your best interest. You're young, wide-eyed, and bushy-tailed, as many would say. However, we know that you're not always sure of yourself, and you wonder about what the future holds for you. You know that both your parents expected the most from you, especially since you are the oldest of their 11 children. Because you know this, you always want to do whatever will not disappoint them. This simple but basic thought will guide much of what you do when making decisions or making choices for yourself. Whenever you ponder your future, don't be hesitant or afraid to pursue the very best in whatever you do. Don't worry about what others may say about your desire to do the best that you can. 
Although people will say things about you, don't let that cause you to stray from reaching your goals. Your dad, as you know, always tells you to be a good man, take good care of your family, and strive to make life better for your children, better than what you experienced. You can truthfully say that is what your dad did. So when you get your family, be sure to emulate him in that particular regard. Although neither of your parents were high school graduates, you will wonder why they insisted on you getting a good education. They learned quickly that an education uh, would do for, for you great things in terms of opportunity. You will do well to seriously heed what they told you. Getting an education and doing it well will make the difference for you in so many future instances. Both your parents were spiritual people and they insisted on you being exposed to spirituality and gaining a fundamental faith and strong belief in God. There will be times when you question what you have been told about God and what he can do for you. You will do well not to discard or try to rationalize your faith in favor of what mankind will attempt to show or explain to you in order to weaken your belief. Stay in close contact with other believers and continue to grow spiritually. When you're older and have a family, you will see just how great God is to you and those you love. Lastly, speaking of love, you will be truly blessed by God when he provides the woman he has chosen to be your wife. You will know her and she will know you. You don't have to worry if you're making a mistake. Take good care of her. And don't forget to take good care of yourself. Avoid those things and those people that you know are not good for you. The Lord has a wonderful plan for you. Just pursue it and your life path with enthusiasm, love for others, and sincere faith. Sincerely, an older guy who knows you better than you know yourself. Oh, George, that was perfect. Totally perfect. You know, as I, um, I start thinking about this theme, I start thinking about, um, I have a veteran story. And instead of doing my normal doggy bag thing, I think I would like to share with my audience and with you a chapter from my memoir called Daddy's Home. <laughs> Let's hear it. By the time Daddy made it home to stay, I was four years old, almost five. He arrived after my bedtime, so I met him the next morning. I had no idea it was coming when I woke up and ran toward Mother's room as usual. There she was, instead sitting in the living room on the couch with the man in the photograph. He was wearing the same outfit that he had on in the picture, and Mother had on a pretty dress. 
I was thinking like a four-year-old. The man in the photograph was home at last. I was there. Mother was there. We were all there. Now what? Should I go over to him? Shall I wait until he makes the first move? Should I say, hello, Daddy? Where was he going to sleep? My room was full of loved-up stuffed animals and dolls and my tricycle. I was so ready for him to be with me, and yet I didn't know how to be with him. Was this something Mother forgot to teach me? There was no need for me to worry. It turned out that Daddy's love was the kind that reached out and touched my heart ever so gently and quietly right away. He knew just what to say. He leaned forward on the couch. He looked at me and smiled and said, There's my beautiful Buncey. Oh, I wanted him to be talking about me. Please let him be talking about me. But who was Buncey? Apparently, when Daddy first met me, he thought Tyra Sandretta Garlington was too big a name for a little infant, so he called me Buncey. In a split second, I became Buncey. I wanted to be whatever I needed to be so this nice man could be mine. I immediately thought that as long as he was around, I would always be safe. I didn't care where he slept. I didn't care what he called me. I knew instantly he was the missing piece in my life's puzzle. I fell in love with him forever. Remember, those of you listening, you've been listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia. This is Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. My guest has been Mr. George Bodie and his lovely wife. Remember, you are worthy. You have everything inside of you you need. You are amazing. Your seat at the table is guaranteed. This is Tyra G. I'm here and I'm listening. I love you.